This is the Macworld Podcast, episode 493 for February 3rd, 2016. Welcome back to the Macworld Podcast, everyone. I'm Glenn Fleischman, a senior contributor at Macworld. And joining me, as regularly is the case, is Susie Oaks, the executive editor of Macworld. Hello, Susie. Good morning, Glenn. How are you? Well, you know, Apple's doomed. That's how I am. Doomed, doomed, I tell you, doomed. That's okay, because I'm in Super Bowl City. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, well, yeah. What's it like being in a, a federally authorized, uh, subsidized lockdown situation? I'm curious about how that works. Just, you know, I actually just for when the FEMA camps take over. Yeah, I haven't really gotten close to it. I've noticed that they've pushed um, some of the homeless people that are usually around this area like further out. So that's been a controversy. They've just uh, relocated a bunch of homeless people. So the tourists don't notice that we have a, a big homeless problem here. It's funny how um, they could have spent some of those tens of millions of dollars on like creating right? effective homeless shelters that would be funded for like 10 years. But hey, that's, you know, football, woo, sports. Woo, yeah. I'm um, just offended all of our listeners. I'm sorry, but I prefer spending money on emails to human beings who are not fighting each other, typically. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the game is far away, as we know, in Santa Clara, but the um, Super Bowl city is downtown. I haven't really had to go very close to it, but I guess that's good because there's like a secure perimeter and it's being guarded by men with guns. And this is a big deal. Like I've never been in a town that was having the Super Bowl, like while it was having the Super Bowl. And it's a it's. I guess the biggest wire did a really good um, story about the security. Yeah, and it's, it's the biggest thing outside of like a presidential inauguration. So they, they plan it for two years. My husband said he saw a thing that was like downtown. This like um, sensor was kind of tied to a, um, a, you know, light pole kind of thing. And it had a big hose coming out the top of it. And huh. his understanding is that it's sniffing the air for like chemical weapons. And Oh, yeah. They do that routinely at the Olympics, too, is uh, mm-hmm. is they um, that's actually one of the big things is they're trying to constantly have a um, uh, although it's usually not that obvious, but constantly be <laughs> checking the perimeter. It looks like a crazy, you know, elephant kind of thing. Oh, weird. Yeah. Because yeah. they're constantly checking for, you know, somebody tries to release um, uh, not anthrax. I don't think it's detectable that way, but uh, ricin or uh, other substances, often you can't get a lot of dispersal pattern, but they want to figure out where it's at right away if something like that were to happen. Um, you know, fun stuff, fun stuff, football, woo. I, and I they know. already do. And it was funny reading this article and they were talking about like, okay, yeah, there's, you know, facial recognition cameras and they take a picture of everyone's license plate. But actually they do that all the time anyway. And I was like, wow. So I was riding to work on the bus this morning just thinking about like, you know, trying to notice all the cameras that, you know, I walk by every day. And yeah, it's... We're, we're being surveilled. <laughs> our colleague over at Ars Technica, Sarus Farivar, who used to be at Macworld many years ago, is written regularly about uh, surveillance state issues. He's in Oakland, and um, he's the best. Yeah, so you can, you know, he's written about uh, license plate cameras and uh, those uh, devices that are used by federal agencies to intercept uh, cell signals, and uh, has filed numerable Freedom of Information Act disclosures. So if you want to. Uh, if you want to read more about that kind of thing, he's gone into it in depth, and uh, it's kind of remarkable how much is being scanned all the time. But, but anyway, yeah, that's all about back to Apple. Yes, well, <laughs> Apple. I know we can we can the, contrast that with especially our conversation last week with Rich Mogul. Apple tends to not get involved in those kinds of things. Uh, and I mean, actually, there's a, there's a contrast even about how Google is involved in like massive machine learning projects, which can be used for uh, you know purposes like. Uh, examining vast amounts of image and video data and audio data and producing results. And, and Apple has done that too, but it's all been internal for things like Siri. 
So it's interesting how they present that same data. Uh, let's start off with uh, this upcoming rumored Apple event, which is not yet official as we record this, uh, but no, uh, mid-March. None of this has been confirmed and probably won't be for several more weeks. They yeah. usually send the invites out about a week early, maybe 10 days or so, something like that. So, yes, there's a rumored Apple event. 9 to 5 Mac has been, um, you know, on top of those rumors. They're almost always right about these things. And they were saying the week of March 14th. So the Tuesday of that week is March 15th. And today they said, actually, March 15th. So we all have the same calendars, which is nice. Um, but, yeah, that's a problem for me. <laughs> and let's make this all about me. Um, yes. My my whole staff is going to be in South by Southwest. They're all flying home that day like they would be in the airport and or the air while this event takes place, if it takes place that day. Make sure they book flights on airlines that have uh, Wi-Fi so they can stream. Oh, the, yeah. Uh, yeah, stream <clears> the <throat> Apple event from a plane. That would be really filing fun. Filing from the air. Uh, yeah, well, it's typical that Apple has an event in March, so it won't be surprising. I'll be curious what they have in announce. Austin. Yeah, well, it's, yeah, they, they used to have uh, big operations there. I don't know if they still do. They do, yeah. They have a pretty big... That's where the repair big, center used to be. Pretty big office. Um, yeah, so iPad Air 3 makes sense... Um, there's some suspicion. We'll talk about uh, a little bit about Apple's uh, earning reports, uh, not the financial part, but the uh, <laughs> some of the behavioral things. But the iPad, the fact that the iPad Air 2 is sort of out of date in some ways. So when mm -hmm. you look at people updating to the next thing, like the iPad has a long uh, release cycle or an update cycle clearly for people. I mean, I've got... Um, well, they didn't update it last fall. But yeah. I mean, if they update it this spring, that's not... That's a little longer, but it's not that bad, oh, especially since people don't refresh their iPads well, quite as often. Well, the thing is you have to give people something more compelling. So I think part of what suppresses uh, the cycle changing is that there's nothing really that compelling. I mean, the iPad Pro is a new product, and the Mini was a new product, and then the Retina Mini was a new product. Uh, but the iPad Air is kind of mature, so you have to give people a reason. You know, there's the normal refresh to keep it up to date, but then uh, will it take people uh, from their um, enjoyment of their current thing and go, oh, well, my, my iPad – Four is starting to see data now. I will get the iPad Air three or what have you. Yeah, if you're waiting for you know a new iPad that's not the Pro or the Mini, the iPad Air three sounds pretty good. Um, it might have uh, it might have a better camera, which doesn't really excite me that much because I don't tend to shoot pictures with my iPad, but I know a lot of people do. Yeah, and then you get hit by that. You're, if you're using an older iPad and you're like, God, the camera is so terrible, then this actually could be a compelling feature too. And the speakers would be a bigger oh, deal right. for me. It's it's uh, rumored to have four speakers around the edge, which um, the iPad Pro does, and it has it uses software to kind of tell, you know, which way is up. Obviously, it knows that, so it will always it'll rebalance the you know wh which speakers the the sound is coming out of. So you always are um, don't have it you know firing like right down into the table or into your case if you have it in a in a stand kind of thing. So that would be nice because, I mean, I use the iPad for um, watching movies and TV a ton, so I would love an iPad with better speakers. New Apple Watch bands is one of the rumors, but not a new, not a Watch 2. I mean, so it yeah. sounds like they're going to sell... Yeah, at first they said Apple Watch 2, but they've kind of rolled that back a little ah. bit, and now they're talking about like a, an all-black, um, oh, I'm blanking, what's the, the, the mayonnaise loop? My favorite um, ba band, the the Milanese Loop. Um, <laughs> the Milanese Loop. I've I if always. If your mayonnaise goes black, you should throw it away. Yes, all black mayonnaise, super stylish. Um, yeah, an all black mayonnaise loop, and maybe some other bands. Maybe they do like you know like a fashion partnership or something. But I don't think they're going to refresh the hardware and get a new wild. chip and GPS and Wi-Fi and all that stuff that it kind of needs. Well, so yeah, GPS, we'll see. I it mean, might just be co cosmetic, you know, changes. When you look at other watches, uh, 
like Garmin has one with GPS. There's a few. Um, I was just working in a fitness band uh, guide at the wire cutter, and GPS is really tricky. You know, it drains power. Mm-hmm. It adds weight. It adds bulk. Like I think it's still. I mean, Garmin has what people like. Uh, there's a Garmin watch that's pretty simple in some ways, but it's a just for fitness. It doesn't do. It has some apps and things, but it's really less of a smartwatch, more like a really great fitness tracker with some announce uh, like uh, notification features. Uh, and it does GPS, but it's apparently kind of herkin, and you know you got to charge it more often. And uh, yeah. although actually the one tricky of the thing Fitbits is, does GPS now. Yeah, and it's but it's like the uh, if you want smartphone functions, uh, smartwatch functions, you have to charge something all the time. Yeah, already. I don't think it's worth the trade offs. Right. I don't think the benefits from being able to like look back at your running route or you know that important. But it's also um, when you usually if you have to have your smartphone with you already, you could be running the GPS thing on the smartphone with an Apple Watch when you yeah. I mean, you don't have to I know you don't have, for some applications but the the Garmin thing is because it's so simple and I think it has uh just a um oh like the paper white style screen you know the uh, uh ink yeah so it uses so much less energy it can have GPS and not need to be charged every day but mm-hmm. if you put GPS into an Apple Watch you're talking about you know how many hours of lifetime you got for your run for a couple hours or an hour you come back you have to charge it immediately which so you know I think we're still I got to believe we're at least a year away from something that can actually manage battery life. I mean, assume that chip development's going on constantly to improve this. Um, and so the uh, same thing with cellular. I've been, I was saying when the original Apple Watch was released, I was thinking within three years, you know, by 2018, I guess, they'd have cellular in the watch. Because if it's going to be longer than that, it doesn't make sense. And some people said it would be longer. Or actually, I was thinking version 3.0, which I assumed would be 2017, not 2018. Uh, but if they're not going to ship a 2.0 this year, that kind of pushes things out as well. Or I wouldn't want to get stuck into a year. You know, if they push one out this year, everyone's going to expect one every year. And that's I a know. terrible like wheel for them to get into. I don't totally understand the Apple Watch market. So we'll we'll keep talking about that. And then the iPhone 5SE is the thing that I'm kind of excited about because it's, it's uh, what all the reports are starting to uh, coalesce about are exactly what we'd hoped for, which is yeah. a, a refreshed... Essentially, an iPhone S, so fingerprint, touch ID sensor, uh, but in the uh, small form, fa- and, and that's basically an iPhone S that's been refreshed. So it has an A9, it was an A8X or A9 processor. The guts of an iPhone six shoved into an iPhone five. Yeah, which makes sense. Type casing with maybe you know like the rounded edges of an iPhone six. Yeah, so but I don't the know the size would, of an iPhone five. Would you get three uh, D touch or no? I haven't seen if that would happen. The probably rumor not. Says no three D touch. Not in that touch. size. It would be hard. They'd have to make it thicker, probably. But Touch they ID, could, yes, and Apple Pay, yes, but no 3D Touch on the screen. Because Apple Pay and performance are really the things that we're missing from a 5S. It had a good camera. Mm-hmm. I liked my 5S very much. I, I barely wanted to update to an iPhone 6, um, and I did because of Apple Pay and some other features I need to write about. But uh, uh, if the 5SE comes out, I think they will actually do very well with that, and that might help them goose some of the flagging sales, which we'll talk about in a moment. So Yeah, well, an iOS 9 supported every single device that iOS 8 did. So, But iOS 10, I mean, we may not be so lucky. So if they need to have kind of like a modern device that's both, you know, on the, the, the more bargain end of the price point spectrum and on the smaller end, because they said in the earnings call that 40% of people who had an iPhone before the iPhone 6 have upgraded to one of the larger screened iPhones, the 6, the 6 Plus, the 6S, the 6 Plus. That leaves 60% of those pre-6 iPhone owners having not upgraded. 
migrated. Some of them might have gone Android. Some of them might have, you know, moved to Antarctica. But some of them might be like, no, I don't want a big phone. I want a little phone. I think that's my wife. And that's a lot of people I talk to are like, I don't want to get a hurricane phone. I hear that a lot too, yeah. Yeah. So, and that could help them with, uh, let's say, with lagging sales, uh, slow down. Um, So let's transition into, uh, so I'd ask everyone at home, please rotate the lenses on your your eye goggles, tune into frequency (laughs) 432.75 on your dial, and uh, and enter the virtual environment we're about to discuss. You'll feel a slight sense of nausea as you pass through the barrier, and then you can see us all in 3D. Hi, hi, everybody. Uh, So Apple might get into virtual reality. That's, uh, (laughs) that was an interesting slip in an otherwise routine Earnings call was it Gene Munster? I think it was old yes, Gene Munster. Yes, it was our favorite. He He's used no, to always beat the drum for the Apple TV, like the TV TV, the telev- and, Apple Television set. Yeah, and the day that that died, everyone was like, "Oh man, what is Gene Aww. Munster going to ask about now?" And now he's got a new thing, and it's VR. He asked Tim Cook what he thinks of VR. He's like, "I know you don't comment on future products, which like, duh, we all like sing it with us, Gene." So, um, yeah, Tim, it was awesome. Everyone who was listening like, to the call was like, "Yay, Gene!" But then <laughs> so, Tim was like, "Yeah." That's interesting like what yes i mean it was surprisingly positive coming out of apple and uh, And as dan warren pointed out every time tim says interesting they end up getting into it he's like oh i think the wrist is an interesting space i think the left big toe is fascinating like what he also finds computers interesting smartphones he's a he's an interesting guy football yeah, well, you know, there was, uh, yeah, his team, <laughs> his team not doing so good is what I heard. At the same time as uh, Alphabet surpassed him. We'll talk about that in a minute, too. But uh, so VR, so I was looking up, I knew there's a lot of VR going on out there. I've only seen a tested Oculus once. Um, so you've got Oculus, Microsoft's HoloLens, which maybe it's still unclear. That's kind of mixed reality. Yeah, it's sort wait, of augmented, like an augmented I, VR kind I of mashup. Love, I think augmented reality has tons of potential too. And I feel like yeah. Google, Google Glass kind of made people think it, it was a bad idea because of the form factor and and so forth. But and you've got HTC uh, Vive Pre, Viva Pre, whatever they're calling it. I Samsung think it's the Vive? Gear. Is it the Vive or the Vive? Vive, maybe it's the Vive. I think it's the Vive. Vive. I would call it Vive, but you know, Vive because of French. Our uh, coworkers Sony. really like that flow and everyone who tried it at... Um, uh, what's it called? CES. They all had a good time with the Vive. Yeah, and Samsung Gear, Sony Project Morpheus. I don't know where that's at now. G- uh, Google Cardboard. My son came home, older son came home the other day <sighs> and said we were using that at school. He thought it was pretty uh, amazing. The New York Times is uh, putting out stuff that uses its own. Uh, is it, Are they using cardboard? Uh, I forget what it is, but you can go to the New York Times and they're doing virtual uh, reality um uh, projects now to show people like you know what it's like to be uh, you know in a refugee area things like that where they're letting people get other experiences so uh, there's a rumor that a future iPhone might have a dual lens camera even to be able to capture uh, environments um, so you know virtual reality has been next year or the year after for like 20 years <laughs> and uh, I think Jared Lanier's you know it's got some and, real momentum now. Like yeah. products are coming out, they're shipping, like people are buying them. Developers they are do working things. on stuff is the thing. Yeah. Like there's actually enough that developers can build things. And, and uh, you know, one of the uses of HoloLens, I don't know if it's still going on, but they're testing it with uh, the Mars rover drivers where Mars rover drivers, they're always putting on like 3D goggles. They're doing stereoscopic views and they, they're actually like programmers who program the course of the Mars rovers. They do simulations using landscape that they've got scanned in. And then when they're all – everyone's set and agreed on it, they upload the instructions and then the rover executes it. So the drivers have to track it all. And they're using uh, 
Uh, my understanding is HoloLens was being used in that environment. It was being tested as a way to provide a better uh, visualization of paths and, and what was the terrain and so forth from all the scanning. And so that's an incredible scientific uh, that's application. That's so cool. Um, but even I just love the idea of, um, you know, this is always a sci-fi story in movies and in books was, uh, you know, kids would go into class and be like, okay, put on your VR helmets. And, and you know, it's a, mm-hmm. it's a wonderful way. Yeah, Bill way. and Ted showed us the way. Yeah, get, but you get empathy with other people. You can put yourself in their footprints or footsteps. You can see what it's like, uh, you know, not that the imagination is bad, but for like actually nonfiction for like the world around you and yeah. current affairs, being able to step into a scene, I think is great for education. Um, my friends who are game developers are, Kind of, I think there's some mixed reaction. There's the, yeah, this is probably going to be amazing and the next big thing. But there's also like, are we going to be able to take good enough advantage for it? Will there be too many different platforms? Um, will the games all be kind of the ones that do best be kind of stupid because they have to um, appeal to a lowest common denominator, or will we see the same uh, sophistication of the game landscape that's happening in in uh, a lot of other places? So, uh, Apple getting into that space does not seem weird to me at all. No, there's a lot of potential. I mean, there's potential, you know, for for work things like you were talking about. And then there's a ton of educational potential. There's a ton of gaming potential. It's just it's such an open platform that Apple and its developers could do a lot with it if, you know, they they build something into iOS. I mean, the the Samsung ones like, yeah, they require a phone, you know, stuck to it. And the HTC ones, I think, might, too. I'm not sure. Um, I'm going to have to go back and link some of the best VR coverage they did at CES into the show notes for this so we can catch up a little bit because, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I haven't really been following it because it wasn't an Apple thing. Like the Oculus Rift can't work with any of the Macs um, except for the Mac Pro because they, they don't have the um, graphics capability. Can't work with most PCs either, it turns out. But That's hey. true. Yeah. yeah. It no, needs it a very specific hardware like, spec that Hey, get Apple this for hasn't. your PC. It's like if you meet – I mean, it's not unreasonable at all. But I right. think there was so an initial – So that's why we're a little like we don't you know really know what's out there. But they did a lot of coverage at CES. Um, the, my favorite one that I read um, – was Brad Charkas from PC World did a demo where uh, I think he was using the Vive Pre and um, he climbed Mount Everest and Brad is afraid of heights uh-huh. and he has done a lot of like the sitting down you know VR kind of stuff but this was like he was walking around he could use his hands because he had controllers in his hands and that was a new thing usually he was just holding you know a gamepad like PlayStation kind of controller so he was using his hands and he had to go across one of those ladders that they have in the Kumbu Icefall, like across the big crevasses. So he had to do that with his hands and feet and he was looking around and he said he almost like crapped his pants. He's like, it was so real. I was so scared. Like my heart was beating. He's like, I froze. I couldn't do it. They had to like talk me through it. Like we were actually out there like, okay, now move your right hand, like move your left hand. And he's like, I was really scared. I thought I was going to die. Like it wasn't just like, oh, I'm on a fake roller coaster. This is fun. Like my stomach feels weird. We like it got all the way into his brain and his heart and he was like scared so that was a really cool story um they've, they've done some cool things and i think just like the the wealth of potential that it has to touch all these areas that apple is already interested in makes it you know yeah uh, a, a natural if they could figure out a cool way to do it and you know who would want to buy it well I, I know that that's one of those things if you have certain fears they try to uh, acclimate you to things and so I think I've already read about virtual reality being used to do that. So you gradually, you habituate yourself to things. Uh, so instead of suddenly being on a plane and freaking out, you get to, uh, it's just a very reasonable reaction. You're in a piece of metal that's hurtling through the sky. Uh, it's, it's funny how, I'm sorry, when you put it that way, you're like, uh, this is actually a totally ridiculous thing. Actually, it's totally fine to be afraid of it, but um, as opposed to, you know, 
harmless spiders with venom. Those are perfectly fine. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, there's there's tools I think now that already people are working on that, so that could be a way to uh, to help folks. Um, yeah, I got a fear of heights. I'm not sure. Uh, I shouldn't admit that, right? You shouldn't tell people what your fears are because then it winds up being your room of 101. <laughs> Watch out for that. The worst room in the world, Susie. Um, speaking of terrible things, Apple's doomed. It's. I know it's sad. I guess we better close down. Uh, Macworld and uh, pack our bags and move away because uh, and never talk of Apple again. We'll pivot. Uh, it will be VR world. Yeah, because it's earnings, so it's going to be out of business pretty soon. Uh, they only made the largest profit in corporate history ever. Um, but, you know, that's but, great. But, but. Psh, <laughs> psh, psh. I'm just going to go for the rest of the show. Psh, it reminds know. me of the, what's the Mr. Burns line? He's like, I'd trade it all for a little more. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what Wall perfect. Street wants. They're like, yeah, you know, that's a lot of money, but could you make a little more next My time? comment every quarter is Apple uh, Apple avoid, you know, doesn't meet imaginary numbers made up by, pe- by people who don't know their business. I mean, analysts, if, uh, every quarter I'll say this, it's like analysts – make educated guesses. They try to use every piece of data available to them, but Apple controls so much of its supply chain and it's at a scale that doesn't match any other company. So the analysts come up with numbers that are partly based on numbers that Apple gives them. And if Apple doesn't meet these imaginary numbers, then it's like, oh, they've, they haven't met the targets. They're like, well, those aren't Apple's targets. Those are targets set by arbitrary analysts who aren't actually looking at the long-term strength or goals of the business and often fundamentally misunderstand it. So there's that. But, uh, um, I, I think it's been true for a while. People were concerned that Apple would taper off its growth, and we're seeing that, right? The Mac sales uh, were down year over year. iPad sales were down precipitously. Um, it's not that they're not selling them, though. You know, that's the thing. Like when yeah. you sell 15 million units in a category you created, and every unit you sell, you're making a 30 to 40 percent margin. That's still okay. You know, that's still okay. Um, Tim Cook called it the mother of all balance sheets. <laughs> he did. It was. Cute. I miss that. And uh, iPhone sales are slowing, but that's due in part. They had that uh, blowout uh, quarter because uh, was it a year ago? The iPhone six was yeah. supply constrained, and then they got supply in the pipeline. So, in fact, what's more amazing is they went from fifty something million to seventy something million uh, sales. Like, was it quarter over quarter or something? Year over year. Mm-hmm. The previous time around, so they're you know they're at a point where it's hard to get much bigger. Except they're still only a fraction of the smart, smartphone market. There's still like hundreds of millions of people who don't own a smartphone. So there's still a, a, a really large potential for them to sell more de- more devices and convince people to move from Android. Um, Android, I think you know, I just got uh, I have a Moto X, which is a low end phone that I got for testing, and uh, this got six uh, point uh, marshmallow. It was just like pushed to it some point. I turned it on. It's like, hey, you want to install this update? I'm like, yeah. And there's a lot of great things about Android now. It's a yeah, much it's more nice. it's a much more effective competitor. So you don't have the same like, oh god, I'm so sick of this messing around with this. I'm going to switch to. And that's true for iOS users. It's really go mature. To Android. It's easier to use. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, it's great. But it would go both ways. I think you had iOS users who were before iOS 7 and even 8 who were – some things drove them crazy. or like, screw it. I'm just going to Android where I can do what I want. Um, so I think we have a lot more platform parity there. But uh, you know, I, I, what we should ask since we're, you know, we're reader-focused and uh, listener-focused, what does this mean for customers if Mac sales you – know, Mac's still outpacing the rest of the PC industry, which is happy to eke out you know, low double-digit declines in sales. And Apple's like, well, you know, sales are up 7% or whatever. It's like, all right, that's significant. But they're still selling more – their sales figures have still been more consistent um, 
for Macs over the last several years than any other segment of the PC industry. Uh, Microsoft put out a release. They're very excited that their OEM sales had only dropped 5% year over year uh, because the rest of the industry had actually dropped so much, but they were able to, to kick up their OEM sales at the same time. So what does it mean yeah. for, for customers, for Mac owners, for iPad owners, uh, even iPhone you know, uh, lovers? Like what, what happens to, uh, to them if Apple um, sort of stabilizes? It's a plateau where they're selling about the same amount of stuff or maybe a little less. I don't know if that much would happen, at least not right away. Um, I mean, Tim has his refrains that he kind of repeats every time. And one is that, like, you know, we don't run this business like three months at a time. Right. So I don't think they're like, you know, in a conference room in Cupertino right now being like, slam on the brakes. Like, we got to, you know, change the course of this ship. Like, I, I just don't see that happening. But and, and one of the analysts asked a question in the Q&A about, OK, like, are you going after this price point or that price point or, you know, like kind of how you're going to flesh out the lineup? Um, because they did have to. They ha- there were a lot of global currency issues this year, and it puts me to sleep listening to them talk about it because I don't understand that. Um, they kept talking about like, oh, well, here's how much money we would have made if there was a constant currency. Um, but. Yeah, they had to raise prices in a few um, countries. They made two thirds. Oh, yeah. They make two thirds of their money outside the U.S., which I think you know might be easy to forget that they're really a global company. Um, we always look through the lens of you know Americans because we're a U.S. site and we're you know we live here, um, but they're a global company. And the other world economies that are having a, a hard time, Apple had to adjust their prices up in a bunch of com- countries mm-hmm. um, so they could keep their margins intact, and they. That, you know, of course, when you raise prices, you lower demand. So someone had asked, you know, are you going to be pushing out products that you think will have like big demand in, in different places? And they're like, no, we don't really do that. Like we don't chase price points. We try to make a really good product. And that's, you know, our our North Star. So we're just trying to make a really good product and put it out there. And, you know, of course, the unsaid thing is we're trying to make a good product with awesome margins, which they're good at. So they're going to keep doing that. I don't think it's going to be that different, um, at least in the short term. I mean, in the long term, who knows? And and they're exploring new areas. You know, they're they're looking into this car thing. Maybe it'll just be like a software platform that they deliver to you know, car makers that need to, you know, up their tech game, or maybe it'll be a whole new car. Um, they're going to look into VR. I'm sure they're looking into to other things that we haven't even thought of yet. So we know I, they like I to, don't think they're going to, they're, they're like changing their whole game no, plan based on this quarter. We know they like to kill products before they fail. And I think like the iPad is an interesting category where it, you couldn't, you would never say it's failing. It's highly yeah. profitable. They've shipped, I don't know how many hundreds of millions since, I mean, they're, just the latest quarter, they still sold. Uh, I don't have the number in front of me, but they still sold. You know, many, many millions. It was just down a significant amount year over year. Again, probably because of pent up demand and new models and so forth. And and the iPad Pro is the only thing that's exciting people. And I, I think that was something at the outset. The iPad business was never well understood because no one knew how fast people would refresh them and how long it's they'd last. It's such a young business. It's only six years old well, now. Not even. I forget if I've enumerated this recently, but you know, I bought a, a original. I bought an original iPad with Wi-Fi because I w- was writing about it. So I bought that. Then I sold that when the iPad with uh, the the original iPad with Cell came out a few months later. That's the one I have. Yeah. So I sold the first one. As far as I know, that one's still in use. The uh, the uh, original iPad that I got with Cell, I sold to a neighbor who was trying to replace an old, like, dedicated mail thing, this elderly neighbor whose uh, uh, stepson set it up for her. So that's still working perfectly fine uh, s- almost six years later. 
I bought an iPad 2 at some point. Uh, that's my kid's iPad. It works absolutely perfectly and still runs the latest OS, does it? No, it's one behind or a couple behind, but it works perfectly. It still has tons of apps that work. I have an iPad, you know, whatever it was, numbered four, that was given to me as a gift that was, what, 20 late 2012, that is still an absolutely perfect mint condition, and it's three plus years old, and I have no plans to replace it, and I don't need anything better. So that's what, five, let me just list off five iPads that as far as I know, uh, either I own still, or they still work in perfect condition. And so none of those are cycling through, right? It's new buyers, and uh, and so you make a product that's really durable and powerful, and that's, that's the price you pay, is that the cycle could be six or eight years in some cases, or people might decide they don't need one at all. And keep it around, but uh, I think even at the outset it was just confusing because you know the iPhone gets a lot more wear and tear. There's a lot more you want out of a small device, and they are iterating it so fast with so many new features that it's. And then the the carriers and Apple are giving us incentives now to update essentially every year, mm-hmm. um, which is faster cycle I would say even than the two year uh, subsidy model. Now we're it's kind the of beauty on a year of the cycle. lease. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Americans love the lease thing, so yeah. Well, installment keep plans. Keep us paying, and then we'll always have the shiny new thing. Like that's how we roll. Yeah. So I don't know. I, I, it's. I think it's interesting when you see this whole like doom and gloom for Apple. And you're like, they have over two hundred billion dollars in cash in the bank. I mean, they're they have so much. They're it's just it's it's it baffles me when people talk about doom. It's like this is the end for Apple. It's like the end for Apple is like a hundred and fifty years away. You know, if this is the mm-hmm. end. Um, it seemed like the naysayers are the most worried about the iPhone market because that's Apple's biggest product. But I think that, you know, like, okay, we have the the thing that you talked about where the first quarter of the previous fiscal year was, you know, an exceptionally good one. So that this first fiscal, uh, this first quarter that just ended, you know, looks not as um, as, as huge in, in comparison. And then we also have, you know, that 60% of the iPhone owners who are on a small screen phone didn't upgrade to, you know, the, the 6 or the 6S. Um, and then, you know, if we have the, the iPhone 5 SE coming out soon, that could solve that problem. Um, and, you know, the, their, their attention on foreign markets, I think, will... I, this year might be might turn around. This this iPhone thing might end up being a blip. When we, if we look back a year from now, we might be like, "Oh, remember after that quarter when everyone was worried about the iPhone?" Like, ha ha ha. So, right. but you never know. The other phone companies are making really good phones. It's it's a great time to be a smartphone user. If it's, only they could make money off them too. That would yeah. be the amazing part. Like, uh, yeah, Apple's well, the, making all the money. They'll be fine. Well, we were just talking about the the cycle of updates too, and with every now every carrier, Sprint has just been the last of the four big carriers. Mm-hmm. In America, that dropped uh, subsidy plans for smartphones. Basically, dropped their two-year subsidy plans. I think there's still some. There, there's some other subsidies in there, but that essentially, could really affect demand come fall. Well, that's come, the thing. Come spring right? for this new one, and then come fall for the new, you know, flagship guys. Over the last two years, it's we've had a trans- transition that's accelerated to installment plans or leases. I mean, Sprint's still doing Sprint and T-Mobile do leases that are apparently bad deals. Uh, Rob Pegararo, who uh, used to be at the Washington Post and writes for um, Yahoo and uh, USA Today and at the Wirecutter, he's just revising a guide there that we'll have up soon at the Wirecutter about all the plans. So I've been looking at it and I'm like, oh, the lease deals are bad. Don't do a lease. Do a do an installment instead of a lease. Um, and that's, and, but you know, I don't think that's Verizon. That's the same thing though, right? No, no, no. At least, at least you don't know the phone. Installment, well, the installments you, the you don't own the phone either you until the you're phone. done paying no, it no. off. Installment is installment is an agreement to pay it off. Right. So but then at least you, you end up turning it back in after a year. No, you don't. No, no, no. Well, 
you probably only if do. you want to. I'm yeah, sorry. If you want no, to. you don't have to. The thing you is, you don't have to. It's a it's, as a sales contract. If when you lease a phone or when you lease a phone, you're leasing the usage of that phone. On the installment plans, you've agreed to buy the phone and you're paying it off, but you don't have to. They have trade-in options. So right. technically, I mean, it's different. Like you have I to guess. Get, but but I mean, they're works, effectively pretty similar. Well, except that the carriers are treating them differently. So oh, okay. uh, so you can get a lease plan from Sprint and you can pay a bunch of money, and at the end, you don't owe the phone, right? So you not only paid too much, but you have to give the phone back um, or you have to pay some fee, but you don't just get to keep it. So you can't resell it, I should say. You either have to give it back or whatever. So mm-hmm. it's a, it's effectively actually quite uh, different and a worse deal. So that's why um, the worst, the two bottom carriers are <laughs> pushing lease deals because they're more financially advantageous to them. I'm not sure if there's a credit issue about like if you can get a lease and you can't get an installment. Well, it's uh, like how Best Buy makes more money like getting you to sign up for, you know, the plan and the the credit card uh, than they do actually selling you the TV. Uh, so it's it's that kind of thing. Yeah, like the the but, carriers, you know, the the prices for the things they actually sell are, you know, going down down down. So they got to figure out other revenue streams. Well, but the so the installment thing with so the one-year plans with the one-year trade-in, those are relatively new. Like even the AT&T Next plan, which has been around for a bit. Uh, that one and some of the T-Mobile plans, like those were more in like an 18 month cycle unless you paid more or whatever. And now, you know, I did the Apple plan or the Apple iPhone upgrade plan. So next October or this October, I can just trade in and get an iPhone, you know, seven or whatever it's going to be. And so can, uh, you know, a hundred million other people. So I'll be curious if that goose is the schedule. If we, if the average, I don't know what the average refresh time in a phone is. I've never seen that number. It's probably under two years. So does that make it like, you know, 15 months on average now? And does that push uh, for every smartphone maker? Do they suddenly get a a big bump as people turn it in? Then you get all that e-waste too. Oh my God, the number of phones that will just be thrown away or scavenged is going to be pretty uh, fierce as well. Hey, so uh, the news broke and I think it rebroke that Alphabet, um, talking about value, Google's new parent, uh, the parent company structure that Google reformed itself into, uh, was the mo- world's most valuable company. Briefly, because I looked just now, and in fact, it switched again. And uh, <laughs> I know it's well, at a certain level, it's like tiny fluctuations in stock price. Man, so I'm glad we didn't write a story on that. <laughs> yeah, well, it's like I mean, they're both about half a trillion dollars, and uh, Alphabet was slightly more, and Apple slightly less. Now. I just looked a, a couple minutes ago. So what is that? That's market cap? It's market capitalization. Yeah. So okay. it's, you take all the stock that's outstanding, you multiply it by what you could sell it for, and that's essentially it. So it doesn't include goodwill. It doesn't include cash on hand. It's literally the the price of the stock on the, on the market. Apple has like $200 billion in cash or something ridiculous. Or yeah. It's like there's a it? point. Someone just wrote an analysis, uh, I thought LinkedIn Daring Fireball, about the point at which uh, – Apple, uh, there's a specific measure that I uh, I think people in the finance world will laugh at me because they know what it's called. But there's this thing that's called uh, the uh, fair uh, – what is it? It's called – oh, sorry, enterprise value, which has to do with uh, market cap and uh, uh, the net cash on hand. And they're saying, well, there's this inflection point at the current rate where like in 2023 that the effective value of cash versus um, – versus market capitalization means the company is worth zero. You should just be able to buy it for nothing because it's uh, <laughs> its oh, yeah. market cap is below its net cash value. Um, it's weird. But so, uh, but the point I wanted to make was uh, for those who are not stock market habitués is that uh, uh, you look at the two stocks and they're treated very differently. And people look at stock as a proxy for whether a company is doing well or not. 
which is terrible. It's stock has, the stock has nothing to do with whether a company is doing well or not. It has to do with what investors, and typically leading by institutional investors and sometimes high-frequency traders who are you know, holding a stock for milliseconds, what they think the future value of a company is. I mean, some of it's tied up in dividends, like what money you'll get back out over time. That's certainly part of the return. Uh, and a lot of tech companies didn't offer dividends for many, many years. Now we have dividends being offered by many tech companies as, as uh, the market matured. Including and, Apple. Yeah, including Apple. So uh, so when you look – so the stock market is entirely an, a representation of what the market thinks the future value of a company is, not its current value, right? I mean, that's, I think, the big misunderstanding. Like, yes, it represents what a company could be sold for or how it could use its stock right today, but it's confidence, essentially, in that the company has a certain value relative to its operations and cash flow. So if you look at Alphabet, Alphabet's price earnings ratio, the ratio of its uh, of its uh, stock market or its uh, stock price to its um, uh, a profit, um, most recent you know years years profit, uh, uh, Alphabet has a PE ratio of thirty five, right? Uh, so it's valued at thirty five times its most recent uh, you know profit, right? Its most recent uh, net earnings. Apple's valued at ten PE of ten. So if Apple were valued at the same ratio that Google's all of Google stuff is, it would be worth almost $2 trillion, not half a trillion dollars. And that's because the market thinks Google's potential is much more open-ended than Apple. I think So it's undervalued. Highly undervalued. I mean, this is let's not get into stock market advice. If I was right? so allowed we, to buy it, I should be buying it. Yeah. So we should say <laughs> we'll, we'll state like, oh, you know, we're not offering stock market advice. This is an analysis. No, we're not broken, I don't know blah, anything blah, blah, blah. about the stock market. <laughs> but but if you just look at it, you can say, uh, you know, it, uh, there's always been a lack of confidence in Apple because there's a continuous narrative that Apple is about to peak, that it's about to reach the top and then fail. So a PE of ten says this company will probably never be worth much more than it is today. Like it may have a stable earnings and go ahead, but it's really not that valuable as a growth company. Even after, and you know, the stock's been stable for a while too. Like even after a decade of the growth it's had, it's still, it's the growth has always been factored in to it. Where Google, there's there's still a belief that there's an open-ended potential that far exceeds the kind of hardware margins that Apple can get away with, which are very rich. Google has... Um, Lower margins, lower everything else, and yet it gets a capitalization that's so much higher relative to its uh, actual earnings. Look at Amazon. Amazon's PE is 465. It's worth about a quarter of a trillion dollars. And uh, that's, again, that the market still believes, even with Amazon's travails, that in the future its potential is, is you know, to be worth – a hundred times what it is today, essentially, or more, um, or to have sales that are uh, earnings that are substantially higher. So that's the mar- the irrationality of the market. It's not that like we know something secret or the market's stupid, but rather the sense of the market creates the price and the PE ratio can reflect the level of delusion. And it's and there are companies that do a better job at selling the notion that you don't know what they're about to do, but it's really cool. Amazon is really good about that. We are investing for the future. All this investment is going to pay off. So we're doing okay now. Our sales keep going up. We're, we're, we've taken over the world, but you know we're really going to do better in the future. And as long as investors buy that, then Amazon's worth, you know, if Amazon had Apple's PE ratio, it would be worth uh, like $10 billion, not $250, um, and it would be a very different company. Uh, and trust can get lost. So anyway, for what it's worth, that's that's the uh, the story about st- the most valuable company. It doesn't mean that Google has suddenly magically more profit. Apple is massively more profitable uh, on an absolute basis. It's just that the stock market thinks Google has more potential, you know? 
Yep. But, you know, the bottom line is where it counts, right? So. Yeah, it's exciting. It's exciting. Uh, <laughs> I can't wait for the next <clears throat> earnings call. Oh, I know. It's just, it's just, um, it's I funny. I get a really awesome lunch on earnings call day. It's, oh, that's nice. It's, yeah. yeah, and that's the thing that gets me about, it's like the the fundamental problem with American business, the way the market works in executive compensation, not to go into rant, uh, but I think you'll hear Apple actually talk about this. And I think your issue of like the three-month horizon is part of it is uh, if everything you do in your company is gauged to your three-month and 12-month marks then you don't have a very good company, uh, mm-hmm. you know, because you're responding to the vagaries of the stock market that you can't control or external conditions that you can't control instead of building. Like I would say, uh, and, you know, having worked for Jeff Bezos 20 years ago, and I can say he talked about these things then, he was building like a millennial company, you know, a company that would stand for the ages. His concern was never profit. It wasn't that he didn't want to make it, but his concern was to build a big enough enterprise that it could actually uh, have enough control to be able to get to the level of volume to be able to change industries and to be able to you know get a foothold and make margins in them. This has absolutely, I think, been a through line for Amazon, and they've pulled it off because his thinking has been on a t- 5, 10, 20-year basis. Yeah. So even as I criticize some of the things the company does or how it treats its workers or whatever, you still look at it and say, like, they are still investing so heavily – Amazon, side note, you know, when we talk about cloud services, Apple's got iCloud, which they struggle with at time. Google has lots of cloud businesses. Um, Amazon's Amazon Web Services business is now massively profitable, even as they keep lowering costs to uh, their customers, even as they keep investing to build more and more servers and capacity and whatever, new products. Um, it's actually a very profitable part of their business. It may wind up being something that drives profit at Amazon. Uh, so it's exciting to see companies willing to invest like that. And Apple certainly invests heavily, but they figured out how to get a big margin out of that as well and keep their sales up. So I don't know. I, I think there's a there's a good story out, um, I forgot if it was New Yorker, New York Times. It was about how uh, uh, companies in America today are sitting on more cash like proportionally than in the entire history of America because it's easy to acquire and sit on cash. They're not spending it. They're not investing. And you, you can't look at Amazon or, or Apple or Google or even Twitter if you look at their financials and say these companies are actually, you know, they're putting money into what they're doing and uh, in both here and abroad, and it's great. So I support all this research and stuff. It's great. Make new cool things. Uh, thus ends the financial part of our... <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, let's talk about something fun. Good work, hey, everybody. Let's talk about something fun. Um, did you see the story? It was in our partners at PC World, our friends. Uh, we talk about Comcast, not very favorably. <laughs> this is a good one. Yeah. So uh, you saw this, that fellow yes. made a Raspberry Pi, hooked it up to his network. He's got 150 megabit per second download speed on his connection. That's you know up to, promised. Whenever it drops below uh, 50 megabits per second, he checks once an hour. It sends a tweet to uh, to Comcast. And I was thinking, this is like the world's most boring Sandra Bullock movie. Like, <laughs> if, you're, if, you're bu- if your bandwidth drops there's below 50 megabits per second. There's a bomb on the network. Yeah. There's a... There's a <laughs> There's a crash prone app on this network. It's going to go off if it's drops below 50 megabits per second. But I thought that was, uh, I was just thinking, what if all Comcast customers, they oh would my drown gosh, that Twitter. That would be amazing. Yeah. It, it's tricky. Like, actually, I know my only, my technical comment on it is, is at any given time, your service won't be, uh, you know, exactly what's promised. But on average, in a, you know, at every given moment, you should have at least sort of a minimum level of service. So he's doing kind of a spot check over a period of time. And I would say, like, I would look at it the last hour and say, like, look, was I able to achieve it? But then you'd be doing so much testing, you would disrupt the, uh, the speed of your network to begin with. 
doesn't affect me because you know I've got oh oh sorry oh we almost made it <laughs> just expecting a knife to come out of the we my microphone and stab me in my broadband. Um, I know, almost made it through the podcast. but uh, Yeah, I'm trying to figure out where my team can work in Austin if they have to help me cover the thing because they're checking out their Airbnb that day, of course, too. Um, so, yeah, I was like, oh, man, I'm, we got to find them somewhere with like really, really, really good Wi-Fi. Get a, and, a, uh, but bro- then I remembered that I, I'm pretty sure Austin has the Google Fiber. So It does. They should have cafes. Uh, the Starbucks uh, in Austin, if they're wired up. I've been at some in Seattle that have Google Fi on the back end. Like Google is putting fiber into some of these locations. You can get at least – it's not always like you know a gig, but you can get like 40 or 80 or 100 megabits per second. Other thing is traveling tip, uh, Verizon's latest update to their uh, jet – what do they call that? Their um, – what used to be – you know, MiFi was the brand name. But um, mm-hmm. Verizon Jet Pack 4G LTE mobile hotspot. Uh, the latest one of those uh, is actually super fast and super good. It has a ridiculously long battery life, like almost 20 hours, <clears throat> which is insane. So, uh, Killer. Yeah, so you can get full LTE speeds from it. Uh, AT&T has a similar model that's not quite as fast, it sounds like, uh, but it's uh, depending on what kind of plan you have, um, it may be better to add to it. If you have an AT&T plan or a Verizon plan already for a phone, it can be cheaper to add the uh, portable hotspot to it. But that's something uh, useful. These new models are really starting to get – Super. And the battery life thing, the fact that you can get like 20 hours out of a compact thing doesn't weigh very much and share it with, I forget, like 10 people. And um, it's pretty slick. Yeah, I love those things. There's a a company called Karma that does a hotspot that is offering unlimited broadband off their portable thing for not very much a month. But then they had a, they keep throttling it down because they had to roll it back because, of course, someone was doing. All their stuff. Yeah. Well, they don't intend it to be your home internet solution, but it could be. And the the heaviest users who are running like their whole home, everything off there, it's were tricky. using too much data. Well, because they, yeah, they, they restricted it, limit, uh, throttled it at five megabits per second initially. Then they dropped it down to, I think, 2.5 and now maybe even below that. But it's still, this is kind of like T-Mobile's uh, roaming international thing. It's like if you're not paying for the broadband and it's throttled – um, it's still a good deal versus paying huge amounts of money for it. Yeah, it had a good. It has a good um, uh, model. Like you, you pay up. You can pay up front and then just kind of you know use that slowly until it runs out. There's you don't have to get locked into um, paying for this every month whether I use it or not, which makes it attractive. I haven't tried one yet. Yeah, it's a clever. Right, they roll over your. Oh yeah, that's right. It's a nice idea. It's a good approach. Um, it's it's funny because now that we have tethering in all our phones and a lot of plans that used to put tethering as a separate thing, have now incorporated it because of the shared data plans. It gets more and more confusing to compare them. But it's also like, do you need a hotspot when you can tether? But then, you know, one person's phone, if you're traveling with a group, has to do it. um, And the phone may not be able to achieve the top LTE speeds. They're starting to roll out uh, this advanced version of LTE, or not advanced, but more complicated version, where it can use different swaths of frequencies. They don't all have to be adjacent. So uh, Verizon could use... Uh, can actually aggregate a much higher speed connection. I think that's not LTE advanced. I've forgotten the exact term. Uh, so if you get their Jetpack version, it will actually use, as that network grows, you'll be able to get higher uh, upload and download rates because it's not stuck with uh, like a smartphone. Current smartphones can only use um, specific spots, even though they can do sometimes 20 to 40 megabits per second. If those get congested, you're sort of stuck. 
and this new approach will allow a lot more flexibility and better throughput. Um, and phones will eventually support it, but you know, that's a thing that needs a uh, a bigger battery and uh, less functionality to be able to support, like the, the portables have. Cool. Uh, had a we talked about privacy last week, and um, I saw a story at at the MacWorld, a publication you may know, uh, that Safari is the last browser to support the Do Not Track header. I was fascinated by this. Um, we're seeing a lot of um, browser iteration for security and privacy features, but uh, that was a funny one. Did you ever check that box? Did you know the box existed? Um, it's kind no. Of, it's, it's so it says Safari is the the last yeah well, the last one meaning like the last one that still offers it. The others have disabled it. Yeah, basically. Firefox for iOS and Chrome for iOS. Yeah. It's so a, if you want to use Do Not Track. Safari is your only option on iOS. We talked about it before, I think some months ago too. It was a weird setting. Like it was a, it's not a technology setting. It's a Chris Seguin and some other folks proposed this. And then some of them wound up working at the FTC. But and it the doesn't FTC work, right? Well, the idea was that you wanted to give a pot. It was a way for consumers. It was kind of an interesting pilot fish about privacy. Uh, the idea was that browsers could insert a header that just said, do, you know, X dash, then the form of that, you know, do not track. And, if the value was set to one, you were sending an affirmative signal as a consumer, you did not want to be tracked. And the question was whether that could wind up being the basis of FTC action or policy change, whether ad networks would actually listen to it. But then what happened is the browser makers muddied it. So, you know, if you've got a binary decision, yes or no, but if it's intentional and someone has to set it. So Susie, do you want to be tracked? Yes or no? No. Okay. So you've made a choice. What if you launch your browser and you haven't made that choice or it's not presented to you, then what? What's the value? Is it null? Is it no? Is it yes? So some of the browser makers, I think Microsoft got into this, they started setting the default value. So instead of it being empty, so no choice had made, it would either be set to yes or no and typically to don't track me, you know? So mm-hmm. that, and then so the advertising networks were able to throw up their hands and say, hey, this isn't a consumer's choice. This is Microsoft making the choice for a hundred million people, we don't have to pay exactly, and I don't think that was a. F- uh, I don't think anyone was trying to make that come about, like to destroy it by enabling it. But that's basically what happened. So it was never technology; it was a signal, and uh, and it didn't pan out as a way to uh, make it happen because we don't have regulation. Um, some countries have more regulation around advertising and privacy. We were talking last week about the uh, European Union has strict privacy laws, even though they allow a lot of government snooping. Hey, they uh, <laughs> they don't allow companies to snoop people. So if you have it on, the advertisers that see it, well, like they'll see it and they'll know your preference, but they don't actually have to honor your preference. Right. There's no regulation or whatever. Some advertising networks had agreed to, and I think they may have all backed out of it. Uh, I stopped tracking it a while ago because it looked because the strategy basically broke. It was kind of like, a, I mean, right, it's a two-position switch that could have three values. So what do you do, right? That doesn't make any sense. So, and I don't blame the developers of it, the people who came up with the idea, because it was a concept to challenge the notion that people couldn't affirmatively express that they didn't want to be tracked, right? Because there was no way to say, don't track me. Now, I mean, this is why Ghostry and uh, uh, the uh, Safari content blocking extensions came about. And did you see Samsung has added that too? 
Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So, the the Android browser that ships with Samsung devices is now going to support third party content blocking plugins. Yeah, so. that's wild. I mean, Samsung does not have a direct tie with advertisers, so they can get away with it in a way that Google couldn't necessarily in Android. But yeah, and Samsung makes uh, I forget what the percentage of the market is, but it's pretty huge. So that is fascinating. Yeah. So Crystal for iOS, which is one of the very first content blocking extensions, uh, is now going to be available for the Samsung browser for Android too. Um, but all that came about because there's no way for you to say, stop tracking me or stop tracking this kind of data. Yeah, it would have to have you set that. You'd have to be prompted to set it the first time you used that browser, right. I guess. And then there was a question. And then if maybe you're... reminded every year or something. Yeah, right. And know. then if you're prompted, the advertisers asked very reasonably, if you're prompted, what's the default value? Does it say, is it is there a radio button set to yes or no? And if it's not, then how do people, you know, like. And Just I think buttons, man. It's existential. <laughs> well, it's existential. It's like they wanted, advertisers wanted people to have to affirmatively choose to opt out and do not track was more, there was no interface or structure around it. So we'll, we'll see. But I, I use Ghostry and I do not block everything. You know, I go to macworld.com. I'm not trying to take away essentially indirectly my own bread and butter, um, but I, I block certain kinds of beacons and other things that I feel like are extraneous or things that take a long time to load that I don't look at. Like video, I block video because I never look at it. So there's a bunch of networks and things I block, but I also let basically a lot of advertising come through that doesn't interfere with my ability to use a site or load a lot of bandwidth or slow it down. So I've tried to... Uh, I know some people will go into Ghostry and just say, "Poop," you know, block everything. I yeah, I like it, how Ghostry <clears throat> breaks it down for you, but I still feel yeah. like you have to do a lot of research to tell yes. what things are. Like when it says beacons, like I don't even really know what that is. Yeah, yeah. And there's a little, you know, there'll be a little question mark or something that you can click for more info. But even that, it's 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 hard to figure out. I'm not. I'm. I, I guess I'm dumb. I don't know. So no, I block. You, I block some things that it's... you know you you recognize, like Taboola. Okay, that's the thing that puts those like related links oh on the God, bottoms of articles, and they're usually terrible, and no one needs to see that. So like, I, Taboola is obvious. I know if I turn it off, that thing's gonna go away, and it does, and I'm happy. But yeah, I don't know. It, it, there's so many things like our sites will have, you know, 20, 30 things on them and going through this list trying to figure out. So I definitely get the the impulse to just block it all. Um, I My whitelist is really long because, you know, I work in content, so I want to support other content creators. So I, I use Ghostery because I want to see what's going on, but then I end up whitelisting like every site that I visit on a regular basis. I block I block all the stuff that I never actually view so there's no sense in me loading a thing yeah, that i've never <clears throat> like taboola is a good example or gigya gigya runs the comments for or is the, the comment platform idg if you yep. never comment and don't want to see them disabling gigya does not actually affect idg's revenue from the no, site we don't right. care i know exactly <laughs> exactly <laughs> i hereby give you all permission to block taboola and gigya right so i think we make money off taboola though so. pennies a day probably i can <laughs> yeah. I, they, they make you know they put out a trillion impressions and they make some small amount of money there's such low quality content it's horrible it's, but, I hate Taboola. That's the yeah, it's the worst. Um, but but like like so the things like that. Like let's say you don't want comments to load, you could block Discus, you could block Gigya, you could block uh, Live Fire, some of the others, and you're not caught. You're not actually you're speeding up load time for your page. You're downloading. Um, less content and you're not affecting the ability of a site to make money or if it preloads video like let's say i'm on a site and it likes to autoplay video i i couldn't think of any site that would do that uh that seems really impossible and so if i block video loading either by type which i can do with content blocking safari extensions i can actually block video as a category even on specific sites 
depending on the uh, content blocker I'm using, uh, or I could use Ghostry to block specific video delivery things, you know, then I'm not ever going to watch those videos. I don't want them to autoplay, and then they just don't load. So that, I think, is also a legitimate thing. It's when I worry that people just indiscriminately blocking everything uh, are going to wind up destroying the uh, fabric of the internet, but I also understand why they do. And there's some sites I go to, and I do block more ads or their ad networks or blacklist them because they they I can't use the site. And then I eventually just don't go to the site anymore, so I don't use their resources at all. Um, if they're set up that way, if they're set up so badly that I can barely use their site because it's full of ads and it doesn't work without ads, then I don't need to go to that site either. It's true. Uh, let's see. We got one more thing here uh, just to finish up, um, which is the uh, that t.co situation I discussed on last week's podcast. Uh, uh, that was the uh, the Twitter redirect. Um, do you remember we, I was talking about that? I don't know. You, you haven't had that happen to you, though, right, in Safari? No, I did not run into this issue. It's so weird. So so Twitter rewrites all the links in its system to be t.co domain links, and it redirects them so it can track engagement, engagement with what you're doing. Uh, and I was having the problem, and some other people were as well. You can find uh, thousands of people complaining about this over years, that they click a t.co link and Safari won't direct, redirect it. It times out, and then it says can't load the page, and then if you finally reload – it works, and it was confusing as heck because I never have this happen with other redirects, and it doesn't happen to everybody. So it works for you, right? It works for a lot of people, but some subset. So uh, someone pointed me to a, a tweet just a few days after we did the podcast or a day or so, and an Apple engineer, you know, they don't comment publicly on stuff, but the engineers seem to have some leeway. And someone said, posted a tweet about this problem, and an Apple engineer is like, oh, yeah, this actually is at a level below WebKit, but we're aware of it, and we, you know, it's, it's in the queue, so it'll get fixed. Um, and if you use TweetBot in OS X, you can search. Go search on Google for disable redirects, TweetBot, and you'll find there's a default write string you can paste into the terminal, and it disables Twitter's ability, or it disables that rewriting of the URL, so then the URL you see uh, displayed in TweetBot is actually the one that will be opened directly in uh, Safari or another browser, and that prevents the rewrite bug there as well. So if anyone was having that problem, there is a solution. Nice. Yeah, nice to have some answers. Uh, well, it's, we're still in the quiet of uh, February now, but um, things will start heating up as we move towards more announcements and more products and more updates, and uh, we'll keep you abreast of them. So, Susie, great to talk to you again. Thanks. Awesome to discuss Apple with you as always. It was a pleasure. Even the finances. Well, you know, it's doomed. I guess we've got to find new jobs. But as long as they've got a dollar okay. left, we'll keep <laughs> we'll keep at it. Uh, maybe we can all work in the virtual reality mines. We'll just be mining like coal, uh, virtual coal for people or something. Uh, that'll be fun. And so I, uh, I'm a senior contributor at Macworld. His name happens to be Glenn Fleisch, but I'm a little sick for this now. week. For now. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, just for now. <laughs> until the future robot apocalypse comes. Uh, yep. Been a little sick this week, so forgive me if I'm at it. And uh, this has been the Macworld Podcast, episode 493 for February 3rd, 2016. Thanks for listening, folks, and we'll be back again next week.